Hello, welcome to Volts for September 29th, 2021. All about methane with Sarah Smith of the Clean Air Task Force. I'm your host, David Roberts. Methane is having a moment. Methane, chemical name CH4, is a fuel. It is the primary ingredient in natural gas, which generates about 40% of U.S. electricity and heats about half of U.S. homes. It is also an air pollutant, a precursor to ground-level ozone, which is toxic to humans. And it is also a greenhouse gas, much shorter-lived in the atmosphere than CO2, but much more potent while it is there. Methane in the atmosphere comes from leaks along oil and gas infrastructure, from agriculture, primarily cow burps and manure, and from landfills. Rising concern over methane pollution has culminated in the Global Methane Pledge, announced by President Joe Biden's White House last week, which would have participating countries, which include the EU, the UK, and Mexico, reduce methane emissions at least 30% by 2030. This followed the United Nations Environment Program's Global Methane Assessment in May, which found that substantially and rapidly reducing methane is the only way to meet the international goal of keeping warming under 1.5 degrees Celsius. Clearly, for those of us who haven't been paying as close attention as we should, it's time to tune in to the methane debate. The Clean Air Task Force has been tracking methane pollution and advocating for reductions for years, so I was eager to talk to Sarah Smith, the head of the task force's super pollutants program, about the basics of methane, where it comes from, how it can be reduced, and the battles over methane in U.S. policy. Without further ado, Sarah Smith, welcome to Volts. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me, David. So as I said in my intro, methane is having its big moment. Everybody's talking about it. Uh, There seems to be... um, I know that there have been a faction of people who've been trying to draw attention to methane for years. They must be pleased. Everybody's talking about it now. There's actual policy action taking place. There's international discussion of it. So it's time to dig in (laughs) for those of us who have not been following methane as closely as they might and have not tracked the details as closely as they might. I am, of course, talking about myself. So let's go back to uh, the beginning here and just start with what exactly is methane and why does it have so many different names? (laughs) Great question, David. So methane is an invisible, odorless gas that is commonly known as the main constituent of natural gas. And it's flown under the radar, as you said, for far too long. It's currently contributing to about half the warming that we're experiencing today. I know one of the things that is complicated for people and that's been a subject of a lot of discussion is what exactly is the climate change potential, the the heat trapping potential? So methane is a greenhouse gas. It traps heat in the atmosphere, um, traps heat more than CO2, but for a shorter period of time. So let's try to just sort of talk through what is the climate change potential of methane and how does it differ 
from CO2. Every pound of methane heats the climate more than 80 times as much as a pound of CO2. But as you said, methane only lasts for about a decade in the atmosphere, which is a big opportunity because quickly reducing the amount of methane in the atmosphere would very quickly slow warming, whereas carbon dioxide is is slowly building up over time and takes much longer to see that reduction. Right. So um, one post I saw compared it to a stock versus flow. If people are familiar with that contrast, so CO2, if you stock it up there in the atmosphere, just stays, <laughs> stays there basically for up to a thousand years, some of it. So you have to worry about the total amount that's up there. Anything you add stays there. Whereas methane is a flow problem, whereas it's constantly coming out of the atmosphere. So if you just, so is it fair to say that if we reduced the addition of methane to the atmosphere to the rate at which it was falling out of the atmosphere, you would basically stabilize its temperature effect. Is that right? In other words, theoretically, there is some level of methane emissions where you're not making things warmer. Exactly. And and that's the goal, to get back to those pre-industrial concentrations of methane by ensuring that less methane is being added than removed. So you say that it's caused half of historical climate warming thus far. That is startling. <laughs> and I don't think people know that. How is that possible? Because I know all the, you know, I know, I think we're all familiar at this point that basically everything humans do generates CO2 and there's lots of different sources of CO2. But how has this other gas done half the work in history? Maybe just explain sort of like how, how they discovered that, how we didn't know that for so long, how we know it now and how it has done that without drawing more notice, I guess. I ask myself that question all the time. How is it that carbon dioxide's evil twin, methane, has <laughs> evaded attention for so long? I, the IPCC's latest report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, finally shone a bright light on methane. You saw the CO2 bar next to the methane bar, and clearly methane was causing a substantial amount of the warming, about a half as much as CO2. So subsequently, uh, the attention is growing as it, as it should and as it has been for years. But finally, we're really reaching a crescendo here. So what are this kind of implications? You know, you say it's short term in the atmosphere, 10 years in the atmosphere versus CO2, which basically for all intents and purposes stays in the atmosphere. So what are kind of the implications of that for policy? What can we, uh, what does this allow us to do um, if, we, if we grab hold of the methane lever? Right. And a powerful lever it is. Well, we don't have a lot of time left, perhaps 10 to 15 years maybe less, to bend the warming curve in order to stave off irreversible changes to our climate, including self-reinforcing feedbacks where mm -hmm. the wor world warms itself, like the loss of the remaining reflective sea ice, which would add the equivalent of a trillion tons of CO2 to what's already been added. Yikes. And then there's also the Amazon tipping point where the Amazon could be canceled out as a, a carbon sink and, and many others. So we're in this race now to slow warming. 
And the biggest lever we can pull by far is cutting methane. And that's because of a few reasons. But one is that we have the technology to quickly cut methane by at least 45% by 2030. And that would deliver an astonishing 0.3 degrees C of reduced warming, along with a host of other benefits. When we say reduced warming, we mean relative to baseline, right? Not the actual warming going down yet, at least. (laughs) Exactly. Bending the curve down, reducing the rate of warming. So for example, we could reduce this 0.3 degrees C by the early 2040s through reducing methane. Right. So this, I think, you know, if I can just pull this out and highlight it, I think this is the the really key thing about methane is because it's short-lived in the atmosphere, you can, because you could cut CO2 almost to zero tomorrow and the warming, you know, set in motion by the CO2 that's in the atmosphere would continue. But methane is a sort of a more short-term, uh, a more immediate effect on the atmosphere. So you can, so in other words, big cuts in methane will see temperature effects within a decade, right? Like we'll live to see (laughs) in a way, in a way that CO2 cuts, sadly, you know, this is always kind of the awkward thing about talking about CO2 cuts with the public too. You're like, oh, we'll cut a bunch of CO2. And then, you know, your kids, your kids will see some effect from that. Whereas methane gives us this lever that we can actually promise visible results within, you know, a reasonable lifetime. Exactly. Exactly. So decarbonization is, is of course, critical for slowing long-term warming, but it doesn't provide any reduction in warming for 20 to 30 years. And we simply can't wait. So have to address methane. Right. And one other sort of factor that's that's worth throwing in here is one of the things that's going on right now uh, globally is a reduction in aerosols. You know, there's been all this uh, attention to aerosols and their negative environmental effects. But one of the things aerosols did sort of perversely was shelter us, was thicken the atmosphere and shelter us from some of the sunlight and some of the warming. So there's all this worry these days that, you know, reducing aerosols globally, while it will have immediate positive environmental effects on ozone and et cetera, will actually boost short-term warming. So once again, brings you back to the need to some to have some tool, short-term tool to, to fight that effect. Exactly. Exactly. That's a, an important insight and one that this latest report from the IPCC finally highlighted in clear terms. Right. So there has been somewhat notoriously a, not just that methane is rising in the atmosphere, but there's been a sort of notorious spike in methane emissions lately in the last few decades. And it's something of a mystery, as I understand it. Do we know where that methane is coming from? Do Are we certain of where that methane is coming from? We're certain about the spike, but there is a lot of uncertainty around what's driving the spike. And do we have a a list of culprits or are we just guessing? Well, we think fossil is a significant part of the search, but probably not the only contributing factor. Right. So just as 
uh, reductions can bring short-term benefits, we're experiencing a spike, which is going to bring short-term warming, <laughs> more warming than, than we like. In terms of knowing how much methane is out there, one of the more exciting developments of the last few years is, you know, because historically we've relied on a lot of self-reporting by uh, companies and countries that maybe can't uh, be fully trusted to do transparent self-reporting. But lately we have got these satellites now that can allegedly detect methane. So tell me what's going on with the satellites and what 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 are they revealing and what will they reveal when there's, I guess, more of them? The satellite technology is improving and it's exciting that several are planned for launch in the next few years that will give us a much more detailed view from the sky of the emissions all around the world. In the case of the Carbon Mapper satellite constellation, near real-time data for the whole planet. And I think that will revolutionize the policymaking landscape, the action of industry that will suddenly be really on the hook to take this on. So the promise here is, well, t tell me a little bit more about that. What's the satellite network again? There's one called Carbon Mapper that will be a constellation, as I understand it, of more than 20 satellites mm. circling the globe and providing data every few days. Maybe this isn't worth getting into, but how? <laughs> Is there a third grade explanation for how from space you can detect a colorless, odorless gas being emitted on the ground? Is there science there that I need to know? Oh, sadly, I'm really not a, a not a satellite expert, but but NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab is uh, their scientists have been involved in developing this technology. So I am confident in its ability to work. You know, you say it'll change the politics, but it's a little bit hard for me to wrap my head around if it's like the entire world just having a curtain pulled away, the entire world will be exposed now and every single source of methane globally will be exposed. Um, do you have any guesses about what that's going to show? I mean, are there going to be big surprises from that? Obviously, you don't know yet because they're surprises, but sort of like what what kind of things might we find out from that that we don't mm. now know? Well, already some of the some of the satellites in the sky today, which which aren't as good as what's coming, but give us some early clues, have shown massive plumes of methane coming, for example, from oil and gas infrastructure, including pipelines, and have already resulted in some cleanup efforts. Mm. So I'm uh, excited about the, the surprises and, and hopeful that the really big sources will be caught more quickly. What satellites won't be able to do is pinpoint every tiny leak. And we need to try to address those too. But satellites will be able to show us where the bigger emissions are coming from. And before we get into oil and gas, I want to address a question that comes up all the time about methane, which is we keep hearing about giant methane deposits in uh, like permafrost, the Siberian permafrost in bogs and swamps <laughs> and all the things like this. And there's this 
you know, there's this constant worry about some sort of tipping point that unleashes giant methane deposits from permafrost. What's the state of science on that? They exist. How worried should we be about them? Well, right now, more than half of methane is coming from human-caused sources. More than half. Yes, and we should we should address that as quickly as we possibly can, in part to prevent, help prevent a rise in methane from these quote unquote natural sources. The leading one being wetlands. Right now, permafrost is not a huge source compared to others globally, but as temperature rises, could bit by bit become a, a bigger source. But I don't think people should lose sleep over a one-day sudden surge. So you think the chances of some sort of big dramatic release are are relatively low? Yes, that's what the science seems to be saying. Well, I guess that's uh, we can take some relief in, in that. <laughs> <laughs> Still have a lot of work to do, but that's yeah. one bright spot. So then let's talk about human-caused sources of methane emission. What are the big ones globally and what are the big ones in the US and are they are they different in the glo- globally in the US? Overall, they're fairly similar with mm-hmm. about a third of the emissions coming from the fossil sector including oil and gas and coal mines with about a third, maybe a little bit more coming from agriculture with the main sources being livestock, manure, rice cultivation. And then the final the final amount coming from waste, including landfills. Mm-hmm. So those are the three categories, both globally and in the U.S. Those are the three big kind of targets here. Yes. So let's go through them then. Oil and gas, you know, the, the leakage of methane from the oil and gas and coal process uh, has been much discussed <laughs> lately. So maybe um, we could just start, I, I think... Um, we have a pretty good sense of coal mines releasing methane and methane building up in coal mines and releasing. I think people have a pretty good understanding of that. But where in the oil and gas process are these leaks happening? Well, the sad thing is that they're happening all throughout the whole supply chain from the well pad where the gas or the oil is being pumped out of the ground, where there are leaks unloading of liquids along with gas from wells, pneumatic devices, compressors, storage tanks, dehydrators, and all through the supply chain to these, many of these devices also exist, the pneumatics, the compressors, the tanks. And then of course you have the pipelines all the way from the production through the processing, transmission and storage, and even distribution portion of the industry. So there's not one big <laughs> spot to focus on. I mean, that's a little disheartening if it's if it's happening all through, that means you kind of need everybody involved in all parts of that process to to do better. Are there no sort of like junctures or or concentrations we could target first if we're trying to prioritize? I think you're pointing on a big reason why this emission problem still exists. It is dispersed. We are talking about hundreds of thousands, really millions of sources that can and must be cleaned up. That seems like a big job. Do we have, you know, I know, especially when it comes to the perennial question of how clean natural gas 
electricity is compared to coal electricity. This has been a long, ongoing argument in the in the climate world. And, and lately, you have a lot of people saying there's so much leakage of methane before you get natural gas electricity in the in the supply chain on the way that it wipes out any advantage natural gas has over coal. And then, you know, you have other estimates that say, no, the leakage rate is somewhat lower than that. It still has an advantage. So how confident are we that we know the leakage rate in this process? Well, you're right. The leakage of potent methane substantially erodes the climate benefit of gas over coal. And depending on where that gas is produced and how far it's transported before it's used and how it's transported, the upstream emissions can vary widely. Mm. So all of that needs to be factored in. But I think comparison to coal is letting us off too easy. It's not the ambitious benchmark that we really need, which is near zero methane emissions. Flaring needs to end. Venting needs to end. These super emitter plumes and leaks have to be found and fixed. And the old antiquated equipment that vents methane to the atmosphere as part of its normal operation should be phased out. Can, can you just give us a, a few details on what is flaring and and what are, what is venting? I think when I, when I tell normal people who don't follow these sort of things about flaring, they have trouble believing that I'm telling the truth. So can you just ex- <laughs> explain flaring and venting? <laughs> I experienced that too. It is remarkable that billions of dollars worth of gas gets lit on fire <laughs> every year as a disposal mechanism, essentially, right? Because it turns out that burning it is better than just releasing it straight into the air, which is venting. Neither seems ideal. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Why? So, you know, the sort of intuitive response to this is, on the one hand, you have natural gas, which is valuable and used in a lot of different ways, and we go out to mine it and search for it. And then on the other hand, you have oil wells, which are just throwing tons and tons and tons of it away. So why? <laughs> What's going on there? Why, it, it, why throw away a valuable resource? Well, they haven't been forced. The oil producers have not yet been forced to capture and utilize or sell the gas. And but couldn't they make money? I mean, why would they have to be forced if they could make money? Certainly, money could be made. The question is, could more money be made <laughs> in other ways, right? And and so that short-term profit is what's what they're after. I mean, would it be possible for your average oil well to capture that and get it somewhere in a useful form? Like what would be involved in sort of not venting or flaring? What would be involved in capturing and transporting it? Is it a big additional infrastructure? A lot of times it comes down to actually planning in advance and making sure that before the well is drilled, there's capacity to use or get rid of the gas. There are a wide range of solutions from using the XX gas to make power on site um, mm, or right. getting it, making sure there's a pipeline and a compressor there to actually get it to market 
but companies aren't always doing that without being required to. Before I get to fixing the problem, I did want to ask one other question, which is about liquid natural gas, another big source of controversy now. There's people advocating for liquid natural gas export terminals in the U.S. China now is supposedly going to start importing a bunch more liquid natural gas. Is liquid natural gas, in terms of the methane leakage in the process of making it, is it worse than just normal natural gas? There's energy that needs to be used to compress the gas into LNG and then transport it. And we're also concerned about emissions during that transportation process, boil off of gas, leaks, even super emitter events. We have an optical gas imaging camera that can be used to see the emissions that are normally invisible. And we've taken it to some LNG sites in Europe and actually seen the pollution. So we know it's there. We know it exists. And we're concerned about it. It's an area where little study has been done so far, but all of these emissions really do need to be factored in. And how big a problem are abandoned wells? Because, you know, one of the things that's coming, if you if you read about the fracking industry, is that, you know, you're constantly reading that the U.S. fracking industry is on this bubble of debt and the whole thing's going to collapse soon. And, that you know, you have just thousands and thousands and thousands of these wells all over the place, many of which uh, get abandoned because our laws about holding fossil fuel companies responsible for those are rather weak. So are they a source of methane, a source of concern about this? How big of a role are they are abandoned wells playing? They are. They are another source of methane. And we're especially worried about the ones where there is no longer a clear owner. And so unfortunately, the government really needs to step up with the resources and cap these pollution sources. And long term, as you suggest, we have to make sure that oil and gas companies are responsible for their wells. And what does that look like? I mean, what does that policy look like when they're responsible for their wells? Is it just a matter of like bonding some extra money up front? I do think that's key. Yes. Making sure that enough money is actually bonded up front that the well can be capped and properly maintained. And when we say capping a well, this is kind of a dumb question, but are we literally just talking about going and putting a like a a cap on something like what is it literally just like a concrete plug in a tube or is there something more complicated involved uh generally what you're gonna find is this is plumbing not rocket science (laughs) but it is um it can be costly to properly plug these wells and then ensure that they're checked for leaks over time Right. You say um, these ONG problems with methane are fixable. So what's involved in fixing them? I mean, sort of when I imagine it, I just imagine like going along your pipe with some sort of sensor and finding a tiny hole and I don't know, putting super glue on it. Like what's what's involved in stopping these leaks? Well, for one thing, looking for them, whether with (laughs) that would be step one, step one, find the leaks. If it's with a camera or a flyover or increasingly satellite technology, continuous monitoring sensors are are also becoming more popular and lower cost. 
So detecting the emissions and then fixing the problem, which can be as simple as closing a hatch that's been left open or Mm. reigniting a flare that's been snuffed out or, as you say, fixing a hole in a pipeline or in a tank. It doesn't sound like it's a very difficult technical problem to capture. There are no like <laughs> leaks that we can't figure out how to stop. It's not uh, not an intellectual challenge. Right, right, exactly. We have the technology today. In fact, the IEA, uh, the International Energy Agency, says that half of the emissions could be cut from oil and gas at no cost. Huh. And 75% could be done at at low cost with existing technologies. So there's a lot of potential here. And when they say no cost, again, my sort of naive economist brain just wonders why they have to be forced to do something if it's if it's free. Like how why does it why is it no cost? Is it just that when you plug the methane leak, you're preserving more of your I mean, they're not even going after methane in a lot of these places. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm puzzled. How can it be costless? Sure. In enough of the places, the pollutant is the product too. Mm. And that's, that's how the, the minimal, minimal costs associated with finding and fixing these leaks and updating the equipment can be recouped. We're going to get back to U.S. policy here in a little bit, and I'll I'll save a question or two for then. So let's, but let's go at least touch on the other big sources you you listed. Three. The second is agriculture. This is cow burps <laughs> and cow poop to a first approximation. Is that the, are those the big? Yeah. Are those the big ag sources? Those are two of the top ones, indeed. So what can be done about those? Well, first on the, the cow burps, also known as the enteric fermentation, there's no silver bullet, right? But there are solutions that should be pursued, including feed changes and selective breeding. Whenever we improve the productivity and the animal health and fertility, that's going to reduce the methane emissions associated with the products from that animal. So those are good good solutions. And then there's a lot we can do on the manure management side as well. When you say breeding, <laughs> I guess I'm just wondering, breeding cows that burp less, literally? Selective breeding to improve productivity. This is an area that New Zealand has pioneered. And the reductions in emissions aren't staggering. You know, they they see a 10% reduction often. But if we could extend that over more of the world, that would start to make a real impact. And what can be done with the poop? As I understand it, the poop right now just goes into giant lagoons and sits there, off-gassing. <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that right? It's unpleasant to think about, but is that basically what's happening at all these big factory farms? A lot of that does occur. Yes. yes. Some farms have started to adapt, adopt these biogas digesters, which require maintenance, but can be an important solution. And again, that gas can be utilized, right? So that's that's one solution. Is that the main poop 
solution, just capturing the gas and using it? Or is there any, are there other methods? Well, there there are some other actions that can be taken, like decreasing the amount of time it's stored before it's used, covering it better. And there are some emerging interesting technologies like some powdered additives that can be added to the slurry, if you will, to Mm -hmm. reduce the emissions. But more study is needed to understand the effectiveness of some of these, these newer approaches. And more study should be undertaken because the ag sector as a whole is a huge source of methane that we absolutely need to rein in. And growing, right? I mean, the growing source because more and more of the planet is eating more and more meat, right? I mean, basically. Right. That's right. Projection Projected to continue in that direction as well. Yes. I feel uh, obliged to at least say here that it seems to me one of the obvious <laughs> solutions in agriculture is just to eat less meat and, <laughs> and raise fewer animals. I mean, that's that would be the most straightforward way to reduce this, wouldn't it? <laughs> that would certainly help, David. Yes. It's it's funny that all the technological solutions we have, we have so much more faith in than we do in the idea of persuading people to eat less meat. That's a challenging case to make. Yes. <laughs> Even if it's in their own self-interest and would improve health. Yeah. Uh, so it, sa- it sounds then safe to say that the reductions in agriculture are a little bit more difficult and a little bit less thorough and a little bit less fully understood than in oil and gas. Is that right? Yes, that's true. There, there are steps that we could and should take today, but we won't get to zero overnight. But nothing like 75% reductions with existing technology. Nothing, exactly. nothing on that scale. So the third big one then is waste, landfills. As I understand it, the reason they're off-gassing methane is that there's a bunch of organic material in them. That's what does that. So what are the uh, landfill solutions? Do we have any sort of like big 75% scale solutions there? No, unfortunately, not really. (laughs) But (laughs) could again take a substantial bite out of the emissions through existing technologies, like better capping and capturing the gas from landfills and and again, using it, or mm-hmm. if there's no way to use it, at least burning it off so that it doesn't vent directly to the atmosphere. As you said, the methane is a result of organic material decomposing in the in the landfill. And so reducing the amount of organic waste that's winding up in landfills is also a very important piece of the solution. Which would be primarily food waste, right? Right. Food waste is is important to consider and important to try to reduce overall. And what does it look like? I had a reader ask me this once and then I thought about it for the first time. I was like, you know what? I don't actually know what that looks like. What does it look like to capture the gas coming off a landfill? Because landfills are huge, like just geographically, they're huge. Are you talking about putting something physical over them that sort of channels the gas somewhere? Like what what does it look like to capture gas from a landfill? Yes. In order to capture the gas, the landfill has to be covered and the gas 
essentially rises and and gets captured at the centralized points. So that's costs more. Like what's the, I guess if you're just for your sort of average landfill, can you make enough off the gas to pay for the process of capturing it? Like what are the, what are the, are the economics good there? Well, the upfront cost is, can be a barrier and that's where we need to scale up financing and make sure mm. that municipalities and government jurisdictions that are charged with solid waste handling have the resources to invest in better facilities and facilities that pollute less. I mean, food waste seems like a super difficult problem. Are there is, are there any several bullets there that I don't know about? Like, is that just about educating people? Are there any technological solutions to food waste or is this just a behavior thing mostly? One of the groups that works on this is called Refed. And I spoke with their executive director a couple of years ago. He was telling me that there are policy changes that can help, like shifting dates on packaging to ensure mm. that there's maximal time to use the food while safe, improvements in packaging technology and so forth that can all help. But I'm not an expert in food waste. Yeah, I've never, everything I've read about food waste sounds like, ah, oh, that sounds like a lot of trouble. Right. <laughs> like a right. lot of work. Uh, unlike, you know, satellites, which are like cool and easy. Um, <laughs> Expensive, cool and easy. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, I'll take it. So those are the three big sources, oil and gas, ag and landfills. Uh, so this has all come to the fore lately. There's been a lot of press about it. As you say, the IPCC finally sort of grappled with it squarely. The IEA is uh, making it more transparent. And this has all driven a lot of activity, which seems to have culminated, at least uh, uh, for now, in this global methane pledge, which Biden announced just a few days ago, I think, or a week ago. Tell us what that pledge is, and I, two, two things about it I'm particularly curious about. One is just, is it ambitious enough? Is that a sort of pace of methane reduction that is ambitious and will do the job and is enough to sort of avert the warming we want? And two, what reason do we have to think that countries signing the pledge will actually do what they're saying they will do? Sure. Great questions. So EU President Ursula von der Leyen and President Biden together announced this pledge recently, and they called on countries around the world to join them in a collective effort to reduce global methane from all sectors by at least 30% below 2020 levels by 2030. Hmm. And importantly, also to take comprehensive domestic action to achieve this target. So this is a great step in the right direction. So that's an impressive number then. Like, do you think 30% by 2030 is, is real? I do, especially when compared to the 2020 baseline. This would be a very big step toward keeping a 1.5 degree C of warming future in reach. Mm -hmm. And what's the mechanism for, I mean, is this just another Paris style, like Paris agreement style thing where countries are just sort of proclaiming they'll do this and we're trusting them based on their goodwill? This is a voluntary pledge. Yes. And 
I think of it as the launch pad for deep work in every one of these countries that joins to ensure that policies are put into place, that actions are taken on the ground to get these tons out of the air, these tons of methane, and try to stave off these irreversible changes to the climate. Is it fair to say that there's no way to stop short of 1.5 degrees without getting a hold of methane? Yes, yes. We we cannot keep 1.5 in reach without wringing all the methane that we can out of the system. Mm-hmm. So we have this pledge in place now, which seems promising. So what is the, you know, if I'm, if I'm a premier or something from another country and the U.S. is making pledges at me, I'm skeptical. You know, if for no other reason than the U.S. government seems to be flailing back and forth these days and each one reverses the last one, the last one's actions. So catch us up on what is going on in the U.S. on methane policy. What is the what what policies do we have in place specifically, especially with oil and gas? What do we have in place and sort of who's trying to do what? What's the big fight? What are the fights going on right now? Unfortunately, the U.S. is poised to lead by example on this issue through new rules from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and through action by Congress, too, this year that could put us on really strong footing going into the COP and and in really strong footing in bringing more countries onto this pledge. I remember a big fight under Obama, <laughs> too. This fight has been going on for a long time. And Obama put some standards in place. Didn't he? Obama's EPA. Yes. Yes. President Obama's EPA developed standards for new and modified oil and gas uh. sources, but left on the table the emissions from the vast network of existing polluting oil and gas equipment all across the country. And that is something that EPA Administrator Regan, under the Biden administration, has committed to addressing in forthcoming standards that should be out publicly in the next month. Oh, interesting. So does that mean there are no federal standards on existing wells and and mines? That's right. They are allowed to release unlimited methane right now. That's crazy pants. <laughs> and and are those Obama standards on new and modified sources still in place or did Trump uh, mess with those? <laughs> he certainly tried and they were off the books briefly, but Congress took action through the Congressional Review Act and undid the Trump rollback so uh, that the Obama rules are largely back in place, but they need to be updated because we've learned a heck of a lot about methane reduction since 2015 and 2016 when those rules were written. And we now know emissions could be cut in the US by 65% at least using currently available low cost technologies. So when you say we know more, we know more about how to solve how to solve the problem. We do. And we know more about how to solve the problem from states that have stepped up and taken leadership on this issue, including Colorado, which has gone through several rounds of rulemakings on this, Hmm. and even the state of New Mexico, which recently took on flaring 
and when you say take it on, what what what's that mean? <laughs> Actually, both Colorado and New Mexico now have finalized phase outs for flaring of associated gas. That routine flaring is going oh, to interesting. end. So that means you have to capture it? Exactly. Except for in emergency situations, producers are going to have to stop flaring. And has Colorado shown success? Like are methane emissions in Colorado declining? Have they, have they demonstrated that you can actually do it? The latest data I've seen does show a declining leak rate in Colorado. And I expect that trend to continue with the state continuing to take leadership on this issue. So um, another thing I've seen bouncing around in the news that was included, I believe, in the Ways and Means package, but is meant to be included in the Democrats' reconciliation bill, which they're putting together, is a methane fee. So tell me what that is and how it sits alongside the EPA rules. Yes, the methane fee. So this is a modest fee proposal that would reinforce the very specific regulatory requirements that EPA is working on. And it would raise revenue, much of which would actually go to EPA, that could help the agency implement the provisions of the rules, improve reporting, monitoring, and even fund environmental restoration projects, including in communities that have been most impacted by air pollution from this industry and and climate change. So is it fair to say it's intended mostly as a revenue raiser? Like is that the is that the main thrust of it? Yes, that's that's a big thrust, but it's important to note that it would also help reduce emissions quickly and hopefully provide an incentive for companies to go above and beyond if you will the regulations that get promulgated under the Clean Air Act. And what are the politics of all this? What is the what is the oil and gas industry's posture <laughs> toward these upcoming rules? I mean, I, I I would assume, just based on what we know about uh, companies, that the oil and gas industry has been fighting this. I know it's been a battle for years and years and years. They fought with Obama about it. They got Trump to undo it. What's their current sort of posture on these? Are they still just dug in in opposition? Are they fighting EPA? Are they fighting this fee? I would be hesitant to put the whole industry into one bucket on this. Mm. The seas are shifting. And some companies we've seen over the course of the past couple of years have started to support methane regulation. Even API, the Industry Trade Association, has, has changed their messaging on this to be much more supportive. Do we know why? Is that just they just see the writing on the wall? I think they do see the writing on the wall, yes. I know they're protesting the fee. They say it's duplicative or it's on top of the rules. It's confusing. Do you put any credence in those kind of objections? No, I really don't. Uh, This is an industry that could so easily minimize its pollution and has had a chance to do that and hasn't acted quickly enough. So it's time. It's time for the hammer to come down. <laughs> I this you know this is a question that's maybe unanswerable. You could ask about all kinds of corporate behavior throughout history, but it just seems like if you're in oil and gas, you have this problem, you know it's a problem, you know there's more and more attention to the problem, 
you have the technological solutions in hand to solve the problem at very low cost, possibly no cost, it just seems like there would be such a political and public relations boon if you're like, I don't know, pick a company, Chevron or whatever, Exxon, say, we're going to be a different kind of oil and gas company. We're going to be responsible and clean up our methane emissions. You, you, you could do it at low cost and you would reap such a PR <laughs> bonanza. Why have none of them done this? Like why, why not even a single like outlier? Why are they so dug in in oppositionalism on this stuff? And why are none of them being proactive. Do you have any <laughs> theories about this? Well, I wish I could sit each each one of the CEOs down with you, David, because that's <laughs> exactly right. And I think it's a case of just short-sightedness and in some cases prioritizing short-term gains over long-term gains. Uh, the old story. Yeah. Um, so getting toward the end here, but I wanted to ask at least beyond the U.S., globally speaking, where are the other big methane sources? What other countries are particularly bad on this? And are there other countries that are taking action like the U.S., passing new rules, doing stuff like this? Like where, where's the methane action abroad? Well, sadly, sadly, there are methane emissions coming from every continent, every country. And because they're so dispersed, we really need global action on this global problem with many of the big, big economies being the bigger sources right now, but not exclusively. So in terms of where we're seeing action, exciting to see the US stepping up and I'll be curious and hopeful to see strong rules coming out this year and finalized next year in Europe. The European Commission has a methane strategy that cuts across a range of sectors, and they're starting out with some legislation, hopefully later this year, on the oil and gas sector that will, we hope, take action on venting and flaring and leaks and monitoring and reporting the topics that we've we've discussed today. And this would be across the, the EU. Exactly. And hopefully the EU will also establish import standards mm. for all of the gas that it's purchasing. It's currently the number one importer of gas in the world. And so hopefully that will put pressure on Russia and Algeria and Qatar and some of these other countries that are supplying fuel into the EU to implement all of these very common sense best practices. Uh, so this would be, I mean, that that would be something in the same kind of family as like a carbon border tax. You you would just say, as a large importer, we're going to prefer clean sources of methane. Exactly, exactly. And like Russia, I think of Russia as a huge source of natural gas and a and a and a you know controversial nexus of pipelines and all that. Is Russia doing anything? <laughs> Is Russia taking action on this? Like, I assume no, but. Well, <laughs> President Putin spoke about the need to reduce methane and actually called for global action on the topic during the summit, the leaders summit that President huh. Biden organized on climate earlier this year. So it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. Ultimately, we need 
certification and we need monitoring to ensure that the practices are actually being implemented on the ground and the emissions are being prevented. To return to kind of where we started, like when I think about this sort of radical global transparency on methane emissions, when all of a sudden we know on almost real time, almost everywhere in the world that emissions are coming from, that seems like it's just going to absolutely scramble international politics on this. It's going to be fascinating to watch just it will <laughs> kind be. Of from a political point of view. We're going to know a lot more about about methane sources and and a lot more about carbon dioxide sources too. And I hope that I hope that both can be be tackled simultaneously because they absolutely must be if we have a chance of maintaining a safe climate. So then to wrap up, um, we have this big climate meeting coming up, this latest 26th. <laughs> giant climate meeting. Uh, methane's hot now. It's on, the, it's on the front burner. Finally, do you think there will be substantial developments on methane in the, in the upcoming COP? I am hopeful, David, that, that methane could be a bright spot out of this, this upcoming COP and that this global methane pledge, when formally launched, will bring together many more countries to rein in the pollution. In some sense, it almost sounds like there's more and easier action here than on than on CO2 in some ways. Like it seems like a little bit of a lower hanging fruit than CO2. It is. It is the low hanging fruit that has been hiding just out of sight, I think, <laughs> for a long time. And I'm hoping that it will start getting plucked. It would be truly embarrassing if humanity destroyed itself with a pollutant that it could have reduced at no cost. That would be <laughs> right. That would be a terrible epitaph. Indeed. Well, thank you, Sarah, for, for coming on and taking uh, the time. It's very clarifying. Oh, great, David. It was very fun to speak with you. All right. Bye now. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.